Changing the world of work isn't about tactics. It's not about meetings or metrics. It isn't about the benefits, perks, or opportunities. It's about being brave enough to put love first. Everything rises and falls on leadership. So as leaders, we're the ones who have to make it happen. This is the Love in Action Podcast. And here's your host, Marcel Schwantes. Welcome to episode 42. Glad you're here. Today, we're talking about empathy. And we're going to get clear about what empathy is and what it's not. And look at a case study or two about how this leadership powerhouse can spark innovation and solve tough challenges that we all face as leaders. And who better to address the topic of empathy than my guest today, Michael Ventura, founder and CEO of award-winning strategy and design practice, Subrosa. He wrote a compelling book called Applied Empathy, The New Language of Leadership. Michael has worked with some of the world's largest and most important brands, organizations, and startups from GE, Nike, Adobe, to TED, the United Nations, and even the White House. Additionally, Michael has served as a board member and advisor to a variety of organizations, including the Burning Man Project and the United Nations affiliated Tribal Link Foundation. He is a visiting lecturer at Princeton University and West Point, where he teaches design thinking and how to integrate empathy into the creative process. So Michael is going to share the tools and strategies he brings to these global brands so that management can develop a deeper understanding of their customers, their employees, and grow more dynamic leadership. Michael also operates a thriving indigenous medicine practice in his spare time, if you can believe that. And it is my pleasure, Michael, to welcome you to the Love in Action podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for such a glowing introduction. I hope I live up to it. <laughs> well, you will. And uh, I'm confident because I've read so much about you and I've read the book, obviously. And so we have a ritual here on the show. We always start with a gratitude moment. And that is what makes you smile when you get up in the morning these days? Yeah, the first thing that came to mind when you said that is both my uh, wife and my dog who typically take up about 80% of the bed. Um, and, and so when I open my eyes and look around, it's not a, uh, a frustration that I'm relegated to the other 20%, but that I'm sharing it with two of my best pals. Fantastic. So before we dive into the book, uh, let's talk about your company first, Subrosa, right? And, and let's get the people familiar with what, what's unique about your agency and what you do. So we are now in our 11th year as a business and as we've grown and evolved our practice, I think the thing that became most important to us was to not be trapped in the behavior of just recommending. Uh, I think a lot of consultancies get into the, the pattern of um, document creation, right? And, and you know, giving proposals and, and delivering decks and get, strategy that lives on paper. And for us, that was only half the job. And we really wanted to make sure that we never lost touch with our roots as designers, as prototypers, as builders, as architects, as problem solvers. Um, and that's the kind of folks that work here. You know, we, we're a very multidisciplinary team. And so 
I think what makes us interesting and unique to a lot of our clients is that we can do that that upstream strategic work on the business and on the brand, but then we can stick around for some of the doing and we can make sure that what we've recommended can actually become real in the world. Mm-hmm. Okay, so let's talk about the book. Now, the book was released in May of last year. So talk us through what the book is about and, and why you wrote it. Sure. So... In the pursuit of our own positioning as Sub Rosa, one of the things that we really started to challenge ourselves with was to understand what makes us differentiated in the marketplace, uh, other than you know obviously the recommending and doing that I just mentioned. But like, what's the what's the fundamental sort of special sauce? And we made ourselves our own best client. We said, let's staff a project team on this. Let's actually go deep and understand and dissect uh, what our best projects were and what made them successful, and and also what were some of our failures and 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 why did those occur. And in so doing, we really kept zeroing in on this idea of empathy. And this is going back about eight years now. And empathy just kept coming up when we were practicing empathy in our work, our work was always made better. When we ignored perspective taking, when we ignored the ability to stand in someone else's shoes, we sat in a room, said, wouldn't it be cool if, put some ideas on a wall and, and those projects were never as successful or effective uh, as the ones that, that included that perspective taking. And so we decided to really double down on that and to make that our differentiator, but not just by words, but by actions. And so developing a curriculum, which we've taught at the universities that, I, that you just mentioned. Also, uh, in writing the book, the desire for the book was really to not pretend like we need to have some sort of protection around this idea of empathy, but instead to share it because, you know, I, I am a, a big fan of co-opetition. I think that, you know, we can be competitors in one context, but we also should be collaborating when there are right ideas that we should all share. And this was an idea we thought should be shared with the market. Mm, okay. So empathy is one of those squishy words that a lot of people can misinterpret. And so they don't even consider it. Now, it's also kind of a trendy buzzword. You know, it gets tossed around in marketing circles, leadership thinking circles, et cetera. But applied empathy to me evokes action. Okay. So in your own experience, I mean, tell me how you describe it. How do you describe empathy? Yeah. So I think you're right to say some the misconstruing of empathy is is pretty rampant. I think a lot of people have preconceived notions about what it is and what it isn't. So some of the things I like to start with is what what it isn't. It isn't about being nice. It isn't about being compassionate or sympathetic. Those are all side effects of empathy. And so if we're practicing empathy the right way, we, we might be inclined to be nicer to our colleagues or more sympathetic because we have seen the world from their perspective. And so empathy... Uh, overall is the act of perspective taking. But within empathy, there are a couple subsets. There is effective empathy with an A. Uh, Effective empathy is the most common perceived type of empathy, which is um, I notice something about you. Perhaps I perceive that you're sad. When I'm sad, I want to be treated a certain way. And so I treat you that way. So let's say when I'm sad, I want to be consoled. And I go over and console you. Now, what if for you, you actually like to be left alone when you're sad, right? And so that's the folly of effective empathy. And that's why 
empathy overall often gets a bad rap or a soft rap, if you will, um, because people think of it as all of these kindnesses that you'll bestow upon someone else because effective empathy sort of uh, begets that in some way. So we don't work from that place. Um, I'll get to the one we work from uh, in a moment. The middle one, somatic empathy, is also something super hard to train, not always terribly accurate, and that's the physical embodying of the emotions or feelings of another. And so good example colloquially that we all know is like sympathy pains when a spouse is pregnant, right? Or nurses who suffer from empathy burnout from feeling the emotions of their patients uh, too much, right? So hard to train doesn't necessarily have a ton of uh, business application and isn't always positive. Um, The third type of empathy uh, is cognitive empathy. And this is where applied empathy really begins. Cognitive empathy is training the act of perspective taking through inquiry, through actually having a dialogue. And so I like to think of cognitive empathy as uh, platinum rule instead of golden rule, right? So instead of do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, it's do unto others as they would have you do unto them. Right. right. And right. the only way you're going to know that is by having a conversation, by getting to know someone, by asking questions. If you're guessing, you're actually using effective empathy. It, it requires dialogue, it requires action. And that's where the applied really comes in. So for us, applied empathy is yeah. self-aware perspective taking to gain richer and deeper understanding. Right. We have to know where we're coming from and we have to use inquiry in order to understand where you're coming from and then use that understanding to build a stronger partnership. Yeah, it's fascinating because you cannot have none of those without a lot of authentic conversations and a lot of active listening involved in that. Um, okay, so still, business and empathy are rarely used together. Now, before we go into the case study, and we, we have such a good one, why is empathy such a valuable skill for leaders to have? So particularly in this day and age, I think it's it's more important than ever because we live in a world where we all have a device in our pocket that lets us customize our experience of news, of interactions with people. You know, the, the advent of technology and smart devices have given us the opportunity to expect customization and personalization at every turn. And so the one-size-fits-all management style of the past no longer can be as effective as it used to be because our mindset has changed and our expectation of customization and personalization has changed too. And so as leaders running organizations where we are also comprised of probably the most diverse psychographic cross-section of, of humanity working in one building than we've ever had, you know, when, when the boomer generation was running businesses and launching businesses in, in, in that era, there was really one mindset sort of at play inside there, right? And then we had uh, Gen X, and then we had quickly Gen Y, then we had millennials, now we have Gen Z, and now Gen Alpha. And so we're getting all of these different psychographics, these different expectations of how the world engages with us, working and living in the same environment. And we can't lead them all the same way. We have to take perspective, we have to ask smart questions, and we have to understand how to adjust our organizational culture and operating models. We have to understand how to build teams that are more resilient and collaborative, and the only way we can do that is by practicing empathy. Mm, Okay, so let's go to that case study. Man, I love this one. In fact, I I read it about three times. Oh, wow. This is so compelling to me. So it's sort of an origin story about how your company in its earlier days when you were about 20 people strong Mm -hmm. and applying empathy, as you said, as part of your methodology. Now, it happened, and I'm setting this up like this. When General Electric approached you about helping them grow 
their uh, medical imaging systems, you know, that they sell to hospitals and clinics. And <laughs> I'm astounded by how you put empathy into practice to create so much positive change, especially for how women patients, you know, many of them breast cancer patients experience getting their mammograms. Walk us through that process, Michael. Yeah, for sure. It was, it was a really interesting one. So she had asked us to, to dig into that and see if we could grow market share for their business, particularly medical imaging, but, but specifically uh, the, the task was if we can solve for MAMO, we can build best practices that'll go into CAT and MRI and all of the other devices they make. So we focused on that. And they said, look, we've got five months. Uh, we've got to move the needle this calendar year. We cannot uh, change the machines in that amount of time. So do not focus on product design. This has to be something else. And so off we went. And we built a space uh, that we were going to host research in for the month of October, which was Breast Cancer Awareness Month. Um, and we built it at a retail level in a shopping district in New York City. And we invited in women patients and doctors and cancer survivors and all sorts of different folks who would talk to us. And we had really deep, rich conversations about what the experience is like, what the um, fears are like, what the anxieties are like that come up, and really started to understand the process because even though we had several women on this project team who were working on it, um, not all of them had had a mammo, uh, and not all of them were uh, able to bring firsthand experience to the conversation. Right. And so that inquiry, that question asking, that deep diving was so critical for us. And some of the things we learned were astounding. Unsurprisingly, I think everyone knows whether you've had one or not, that the procedure is historically very painful. The breast tissue goes in the middle of the machine, panels compress tissue from the top to the bottom, and they scan for cancerous cells. It's not a terribly long process, but it is a painful one. And that memory of pain lasts in the minds of patients often for months to come. And so when the time comes for your next screening, you remember that and you're reticent to make that next appointment. And so for GE and for its customers at hospitals, you know, this is a business challenge as well because while yes from a personal health standpoint we want people to be screened at the right intervals hospitals also have utilization goals for their machines and their devices and GE has service contracts for those devices and so there's a business model that that runs alongside the patient health model and so we had to solve for both and so as we started to dig into that and ask more provocative questions and to hear what people's reservations were about their fears, uh, the wait time from when you get screened to when you get your results, the wait time from when you make your appointment to when you get the test, the gown, which is immodest. And, you know, one woman described it as the gown they give sick people. You know, it was like the, she felt like by going in, she was already a step closer to diagnosis. Hmm. And, you know, and so there were all these soft science things around the hard science of the machine that were continuing to surface and were areas where we thought we could help add a human-centered service design layer to that work and actually improve the overall patient experience. And so one interesting insight that I love about it was 87% of the women we talked to told us that the number one reason they don't get screened on a 12-month basis is because the memory of pain is so significant. The second biggest complaint, still in the 80s, in the 80th percentile uh, of folks we spoke to, told us that the second biggest memory they have from the mammography experience was that the rooms are freezing cold. Right. And so we started to dig into that. We said, well, why is the room so cold? And 
who said the room should be cold and couldn't really get a straight answer quickly. We talked with the hospital, you talk with the salespeople from GE, eventually you get back to the engineers. And the engineers are the ones who are specking out the machines in the beginning and they say that the optimal temperature for the lifespan of the machine is 64 degrees. And so that was why the rooms ultimately got set at such a cold temperature. But no one along that journey, and you can't blame the engineers, the engineer's job is to optimize the machine, but yeah. no one along that journey ever raised their hand and said, yeah, but that's cold and people are gonna be uncomfortable and this is already an emotionally taxing experience for them. And so we asked, what would happen if we increased the temperature? And they said, well, by how much? And we said, I don't know, 10 degrees. And they said, well, that shouldn't affect the test. It's just not optimal for the machine. And so all along, this, this room could have been warmer. Uh, it just wasn't being addressed. And so we ran a test where we changed all of that soft science stuff. We changed the appointment-making process to get people in faster. When you arrived, you were treated differently. You were met with a different style gown that was a little more modest and a little more comfortable. The room temperature was different. The lighting, the visuals, even the, the, the smell of the room was adjusted in order to be more spa-like and less clinical. And all of those things have subliminal triggers for patients that allow them to feel more relaxed, that feel more comfortable. And so when we screened those women the first time, we screened them under normal conditions. 60 days later, we brought them back and put them under new conditions and rescreened. The complaint of pain was cut in half. The efficacy of the test was increased by over 10%. And we were able to build an experience that ultimately made people feel better without changing the machine. And the reason why the efficacy went up, just to touch on that, is that the, it was such an unexpected finding. It was because when people were more relaxed, the compression between those two panels got the breast tissue thinner, which actually allowed the machine to scan for cancerous cells more effectively. And so it was a major finding. And we went back to GE and we said, look, you're not in the product business. You're in the product and service business. And much like how in this day and age, people go to certain hospitals where they want to have babies because you might be allowed a birthing room or to have a doula or something like that to kind of customize your, your birth experience. Um, we want to now offer in hospitals GE imaging centers that offer more empathic patient-first experiences. And so GE announced that. They got 10 hospitals to sign up the day of the announcement for a prototype and, and pilot of the program. And while GE has had a hard few years in the market of late, um, their healthcare business has really pivoted around this idea of patient-centric and empathic behaviors that are allowing them to continue to compete well in the marketplace. Oh man, uh, just can't get enough of that story. Thanks for sharing that. So empathy is multifaceted, um, and you discovered seven empathic archetypes, which are these behaviors that uh, govern the way that you guys do work and collaborate and solve problems together. So how did you discover these, these archetypes? Maybe you can share two or three of them. Sure. So what we wanted to do was to think about what are the ways people gather understanding, right? Because everyone does that differently. And so there are empathic behaviors that we all exhibit every day, but don't really categorize as empathic, but they're kind of human nature. They're ways we learn about each other. And so we studied people and we asked questions and we started to figure out what are those behaviors. So I'll tell you what they are, but I'll also say that unlike a Myers-Briggs test or a Finder or something like that. The, these are not types. 
people are not one. We have the capacity to operate across all seven, and we think of them a bit more like like gears. And so good empaths know in this circumstance, in this moment, I need to shift into the confidant gear, which is active listening. Right? And really be able to just show someone that I am there to truly listen for them. Versus in another circumstance, you might need to shift into the inquirer gear, which is about knowing how to ask those deep questions, knowing how to ask those questions that unlock more meaningful, more revealing truths about someone or something. And so as we work with these different archetypes and get more familiar with them, what we can do is get more deft in that shifting and understand what circumstances call for what version of understanding gathering we should drift into okay okay so is this something that i mean are you training your employees on these seven uh, archetypes yep yep everyone's very fluent in them we've got a bunch of different tools and frameworks uh that we've developed in order to do it and actually um as of just a few months ago we've actually formalized our first digital diagnostic tool that people can actually take about a 15 minute long survey and it will give you a readout as an individual that tells you where your strengths are across all seven and where are areas for improvement, which is interesting on an individual basis. But then what's really interesting for us is when you ladder that up to a team or an organizational basis and you start to see where your organizational deficits are. Like for instance, Sub Rosa, speaking autobiographically, one area for us that's actually our lowest indexing is an archetype we call the alchemist. And the alchemist is a prototyper. They are someone who learns by the act of failure in many ways, right? By the making and breaking and making and breaking, they learn, they, they gain deeper understanding. Yeah. And so uh, while we do have some people here who over-index in that uh, as an organization as a whole, it's actually one of the ones that we don't show up as the most. And so we've developed a set of micro-actions and trainings and ways that we can actually spur that behavior to uh, be improved and ultimately become more well-rounded as, a, as an organization as a result. Okay, great. So besides it being in the book, Applied Empathy, are those archetypes available to the public where people can go and log in and maybe, you know, bring that to their organization and teach those archetype principles? So not yet, but soon. Um, so they are in the book and they are in a, a deck of cards that we've created called Q&E, which is questions and empathy. And they're essentially prompts that help people try on those different archetypes and learn how to think from those different perspectives. Both of those are available on appliedempathy.com. But the test itself, we're going to roll out at the back half of this year for public consumption. Um, right now, we're only using it with our clients. So we are doing it in, behind closed doors uh, You know, when they uh, hire us to do uh, organizational design or a culture piece of work for them or learning and development track for them. But soon, it will also be available to the general public. Okay, great. But yeah, speaking of, I love the question in Empathy Deck of Cards. I checked it out online uh, as a way to enable empathic thinking, which is, I think is kind of cool for kind of stimulating your brain for more empathy. So you guys can go to, to that website that Michael just mentioned. What is it again, the question for empathy? Yeah, appliedempathy.com will get you, get okay. you to the cards as well. Michael, how do you apply empathy if you're in a top-down command and control company culture right now? All the decisions are falling from the top. How, how do you apply empathy? So there's probably no better example of a top-down culture than the military. And so working with West Point and bringing this work there, I think we learned a lot about how even in a very command and control environment, empathy can play a major role. So 
how your leadership team is making decisions. So if we're thinking from the top down, um, we need to make sure that uh, while their decisions are going to be often not debated, right? Uh, you know, when, when a general tells you what to do, you're going to do it. How is the general coming to that decision? And how can we help that general understand that part of the decision-making process is perspective taking, is getting an understanding of the circumstances around them, the environment they're operating within, the leaders they're communicating this to, and how those folks do their best work, right? So while in the heat of uh, combat, perhaps it isn't always easy to take perspective, there is also a lot of strategic planning that happens in organizations like that, Mm -hmm. where that work can be done behind the scenes and in advance of those minute-to-minute decision-making moments. So that's one area. And then the other is to make sure that even though it may be governed by a top-down mandate, ensuring that the, the rank and file of an organization understand when their perspective was being taken and that it is still valued and that it is an input to the top-down decision-making that's going to occur so that they feel like their voice has a seat at the table, even if when the decision comes down, they've still got to act on it whether they like it or not. They've been given an opportunity to participate in the dialogue in advance. And so those are two ways that even in a really rigid military environment, we can still practice empathy effectively. Yeah. Well, there are plenty of generals uh, walking the halls of our uh, organizations now. And this is a great segue to my next question, because to me, empathy is a muscle that you train and anybody can learn it. So, but it takes practice and dedication, right? At the end of your book, you, you offer these, these encouragements. And I think they're great tips for helping leaders develop their empathy. What, what are some of those techniques that you can uh, share? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the ones that I think is is really helpful for folks is to be generous and, and be selfless, right? To actually give uh, wholly and fully into the process and share as much as you can, because that begets more selflessness and more generosity from your colleagues, right? So you'll get that reciprocity. Be curious, be willing to really uh, explore things that you didn't think were worth exploring because when you lift up those rocks and you look underneath, you'll inevitably find interesting insights that are sort of lying there waiting for discovery. Be open-minded. You know, sometimes the best idea or the right idea uh, may not be the idea you thought it was, right? It may be something that you have to change within your own interior self in order to accept the right idea, even though it might not be what you thought it was at the beginning. Uh, and then the last one I'll mention, I mean, there's, there's more, but another one that I, that I really think is important is to be undeterred, to really stick with it. Because empathy is a practice, as you said, and by a practice and a muscle you train, like with anything else, you know, it will atrophy if you don't continue to work it. And so this is the sort of thing that even when it's hard, even when you have to have that tough conversation you didn't want to have, even when you hear feedback that you really didn't want to deal with, you've got to stick with it because that ultimately is going to get, build the muscle memory and the behavior that makes empathy more uh, ingrained in our leadership style. Yeah, yeah. So we got a lot of leaders on the call and uh, <laughs> for, for the skeptics in us, Can there be too much empathy where in your head you may be thinking, you know what, Uh, too much of this, I'm going to lose respect for my leadership, my authority. Absolutely. There is what is often termed ruinous empathy, which is that empathy sort of takes over the, the entirety of the way you operate and homogenizes too much of your decision making or your leadership. And so I am a huge proponent of the fact that empathy should be 
done in a measured way when running businesses. Um, too much of it can short circuit the system. And so I often am encountered with someone in an organization when we first meet uh, the, the leadership team and start to talk about the work we do, who's a skeptic, who's someone who says like, yeah, but this kind of sounds soft. And like, how are we going to know that this is actually working? And, you know, how do you measure this? And, and is it effective? And so what I often say in those instances is that you, you can't measure empathy itself. I mean, you could if you put like caps on people's heads that was tracking their brain activity, but that's not what we're talking about, right? So what, what we want to measure is the knock-on effects of empathy, right? And so you start to see that in the way teams emerge, right? So the emergence of high-functioning teams happen. Once people get trained in this sort of way of thinking, and start to practice it. You see that teams gel better together, they produce better work, they produce work faster, because almost like any good sports team, you know, I think of kind of like the, the no-look pass, right? The same thing, like the reason why you can connect with one person uh, and another with a no-look pass is because of that understanding, because of that intuition, because of that sixth sense that you have. And any good team has that in one way, shape, or form. And empathy helps you gain that. Um, it also helps you gain resilience and the ability to be responsive as the market changes because you're listening, because you're constantly temperature taking in the world around you with your consumers, with your competitors, with the zeitgeist. And you're understanding that, that oh, the market's going to tip a little bit. Let's adjust accordingly. Let's make sure that new product gets out six months ahead of time. Let's, you know, let's hold back on that product release. Let's actually see where things go before we launch, whatever it is, right? You're kind of having empathy for the circumstances around you. And also decision-making. Decision-making starts to become more inclusive, starts to become more collaborative. People start to see their thoughts in the policies and behaviors of an organization. So those are the things you can measure, right? And those are the things you can baseline at the beginning through surveys and, and an understanding of how your clients or your customers or your employees feel on day one, and then check in on again in a few months after you've been doing this and see what's changed. Yeah. But how will you know when empathy is becoming unhealthy and counterproductive? I mean, are there red flags along the way that you can kind of point to and say, oh, we need to step back? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lack of a willingness to have um, hard conversations, a lack of a willingness to be confrontational, not in a negative sense, but in a productive sense. That's some of the early warning signs of, of a little too much niceness, right? It's too much affective empathy, not cognitive empathy, going back to the beginning, what we were right. talking about, right? Like we're going to over-index on, on not rocking the boat, as opposed to over-indexing on understanding why the boat is rocking. Mm, okay. I'm going to take a, a bit of a turn here because you're, you're a fascinating, multifaceted person. You're also an advocate for protecting indigenous cultures. How, how did that come about and why is that so important to you? Well, answering the second question first, because we don't get them once we lose them. Once, we, once they're gone, they're gone. And so they're a finite... Uh, and valuable resource in the world. And I say resource because when we think about indigenous cultures, it's not just the people, but the caretaking that those people do for the land and the ecosystems that they live within and among and have for many years. And as the world becomes more industrialized and becomes more urban, we are running the risk of losing these valuable communities and the resources they have protected and served for so many years. And so for, for me, having a deep respect for those communities and having worked alongside many of them over the years, both through the UN and through other communities that I've, that I've been involved in, what I've seen is there's such a deep uh, empathy 
for the environment and for the and I don't just mean like the trees and the plants, but I mean the entire ecosystem that they live within and how to live uh, in harmony with it and not uh, pillage it for all of its resources and maximize its profitability and to understand to have that empathy for the entirety of the ecosystem and to work in a systems thinking approach um, some indigenous cultures have been doing that for thousands of years and uh, and have lived in harmony and I think there's lots of great lessons that uh, corporate America and that more urban settings can take and are beginning to, I think we're in the early days of it, that we can start to see that the, the most progressive ones are starting to think and behave that way and starting to see how um, a more harmonious strategy actually is also uh, uh, beneficial to their bottom line. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to transition to uh, a little ritual we have here where we talk about love and fear. And I, I certainly consider empathy as a sort of a component of love in the workplace, but yet fear might strip people of exercising their, their empathy. So the question is, why do you think fear is still so prevalent in how businesses are managed rather than the principles of love, in, which includes empathy, respect, and listening? When we have so much evidence, Michael, the evidence is out there that all these things lead to high performance and results. There is a uh, an old guard mentality that the way they came up in an organization is the way everyone has to continue to come up in an organization. And, and it's, it's almost born out of, in, in many instances, it's hard to paint with too broad, of, I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush on this, but in many instances, um, a desire for, the leaders who are in an organization to see people go through the same challenges or frustrations or sort of hard knocks that they went through in order to get to their station in life. And um, the world has changed. And yeah. the, the expectation that because that was how you had to do it should be how everyone else has to do it is not enough. It's not rational. It doesn't actually make sense. It's, it's ego-driven and it's narcissistic. And it's antiquated, and I hope it's an aging out behavior that we'll start to see as the proof points become more and more evident that when you do operate from a place of positivity and encouragement and building on the strengths of each other as opposed to knocking each other down, that you build resilience and profitability and long-term value into organizations. Mm. Okay, so if we were to problem solve, because what I've seen is that uh, it's a systemic issue. When, when fear is prevalent, usually it's indicative of um, of your executive team or the, 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 the makeup of those at the top of the hierarchy, right? And so it becomes a systemic issue, a culture issue, et cetera. How do we reverse this? Is there a first step? So one of the things that we often look at is, and this is going to sound like a boring place to start, but it's actually a really valuable one, is uh, how are people reviewed and remunerated in your organization? And you can look at the review criteria. And if all you're being measured on is your profitability or a singular metric that is really narrowly focused on someone's um, performance as opposed to their ecosystemic 
performance in an organization, how they work with their colleagues, how they empower their teams to be effective as individuals. Are you doing 360 reviews or are you just doing top-down reviews? You know, all of that kind of stuff. And then who rises through the ranks of this organization and start to understand those people and what that makeup of those people are? Are we rewarding bad actors? And in, and in so doing, setting the role models for others to realize that if I want to get ahead here, I've got to be cutthroat and I've got to be a particular type of actor in order to, to rise through the ranks, right? So all of those incentivization structures, be them formal or informal, are great bellwethers for where empathy is working or not. Mm, that's good, Michael. So looking back, if you could mentor your younger self to do something different, what would that be? I think that the biggest challenge that I had starting out and, and to some degree still you know, rears its ugly head when times are challenging is to remember to stay the course for the greater purpose that we are existing in the world as a, as a business and as a, as a collaborator to our clients, right? I think that sometimes when in the past cash flow would get tight or a key employee decided to move on to go somewhere else, that seed of fear starts to come up and it's like, oh, how do we plug the leak in the dam quickly and, you know, and get patience and an adherence to the, the, the bigger vision and the long-term value that we're creating is important to continue to remind yourself of in those moments of sort of trauma and fear. Yeah. Well, before we bring it home, and it's been a fascinating conversation, what's, uh, what are you working on nowadays that you'd like our listeners to know? What's going on for you now? So one of the big things for us is now that um, we've got this diagnostic tool completed is actually doing a, a much deeper immersion with a lot of our clients on organizational transformation and really getting invited into the, the whole of the organization, not just a department, to really help usher in a new era of cultural understanding and ways that social impact can play a role and diversity and inclusion can play a role and, um, and corporate social responsibility and the like, you know, these, these intangible that sit inside every organization and that are the components of culture are often items that are sometimes siloed, sometimes individually owned or controlled as opposed to collectively owned and controlled. And so a lot of the work I'm excited about right now is going inside companies to help um, increase their, their ability to create a meaningful change in the world. Excellent. Michael, we end with two questions. Personally, what's really tugging at your heart right now that you would like our listeners to know? I think that the world is, as we all know, more and more divided, more and more fissured. The news every day talks about our differences, talks about our, our, you know, um, our want to uh, sort of separate and isolate, um, whether it be with border walls or refugee crises or um, things like that. And so I don't think empathy is going to solve all those problems. I don't think it's a cure-all, but it is a start. Right, It is a way to build a bridge where there once was a chasm and start to build a sense of understanding that can hopefully tip the scales in the right direction. Yeah, yeah. And what is that one thing you'd like our listeners to absolutely walk away with here that will make a difference in their lives? I think that don't be daunted by starting. I think a lot of people feel like, oh, this sounds like it's a lot of stuff and I'm going to have to like learn a lot in order to get underway. Just start by being a good question asker and a good listener. Like it's real simple stuff. It's not hard to take a breath, take a beat. And instead of feeling like you've got to rush right to the next meeting or rush right to the next answer, to ask someone, why do you think that way? Tell me a little bit more about that. When did you first feel that? Let's explore that. 
right? And inquire and go a little deeper because that's ultimately the gateway into deeper empathy. Excellent. The book is called Applied Empathy, The New Language of Leadership. He is Michael Ventura. It's been awesome hanging out with you. If people want to connect with you, you mentioned the website already. Do it again and also include any other means that uh, if they want to get in touch with you, how can you do that? Sure, absolutely. And thank you for, for having me and for these wonderful questions. Um, I would say you can always go to appliedempathy.com. That'll give you a lot of updates on upcoming speaking engagements, the book, the cards, all of that sort of stuff. Um, and then I'm also always available and responsive on LinkedIn. You can track me down there. There you go. Thanks, Michael. Appreciate it. All right. Have a great day. Oh, I love that conversation and getting to know Michael Ventura. He is as genuine a person as you'll find. And I'm grateful that I shared his wisdom with you. My personal takeaway from that conversation, empathy is a mindset. And any of us can hone in that ability to inspire others. So how do you do that? Well, be curious, ask questions, seek out information, be open-minded, and know that insights can come from anywhere and everywhere. And also be selfless. Sometimes You need to prioritize others before yourself in order to get to the right place. Thanks for listening to the show. If this conversation brought you value, please do us a favor and leave us a positive rating or review on Apple Podcasts. And if you've missed any episode, you'll find the archives on my website, marcelschwantes.com. On behalf of my wonderful production team at One Stone Creative, thank you, ladies. We'll see you next time when I sit down with Mara Klemich, author of Above the Line. Till then, don't forget, love in action. It's what will truly set your leadership apart. Give it a try. Hey, love in action nation. If you're enjoying the format of the show and the topics we talk about, and you want to bring this conversation to your company event or conference, I would love to explore the possibilities. Whether it's speaking or moderating a live discussion or a Q&A panel, or even producing a series of podcasts before and after your event, let's talk. You can reach me by email personally at marcel at loveinaction.club. That's marcel, M-A-R-C-E-L, at loveinaction.club.